This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. The word canon means rule. We who confess the Reformed theology, piety, and practice confess that the Holy Scriptures are the canon, the final and ruling authority for the Christian faith and the Christian life. In Belgic Confession, Article 7, we say, We believe that those Holy Scriptures fully contain the will of God, and whatsoever man ought to believe unto salvation is sufficiently taught therein. For since the whole manner of worship which God requires of us is written in them at large, it is unlawful for anyone, though an apostle, to teach otherwise than we are now taught in the Holy Scriptures. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, we confess that all Scripture, which are given by inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life, and we say the authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. And therefore it is to be received because it is the Word of God. In modernity, however, the scriptures as the rule or the canon have come under assault, both by rationalists, those who privilege the human intellect over the divine authority of scripture, and by subjectivists, those who privilege human affections over the divine authority of scripture. We know that the scriptures are the canon, and thus the rule for the Christian faith and practice. But the idea of canon also has implications for how we interpret scripture. Dr. Darian Lockett studies this question, how to read the scriptures canonically, and he's on campus this week to give two lectures. First, reading scripture as canon, theological and historical commitments, and second, the difference canon makes diaspora as canonical context for James and First Peter. Dr. Lockett is Associate Professor of Biblical and Theological Studies at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. He earned his Ph.D. in St. Andrews University, Scotland, and serves as a ruling elder at Trinity Presbyterian Church, PCA, in the city of Orange. He's author of a number of articles, chapters, and co-author with Edward W. Klink III of Understanding Biblical Theology, published by Zondervan in 2012. He's married with three kids. Hi, Darian, and welcome to Office Hours. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Rock Chalk Jayhawk. Indeed. Our Jayhawks <laughs> are into the second week of the tournament. All right. So you're watching this and paying attention. As we sit here, we finished the first couple of rounds and now heading for... Uh, yeah, this is the Sweet 16. Sweet yeah. 16. So uh, I was delighted to find out that we both share some history in Kansas and both maybe share a love of Kansas basketball. That's uh, what my wife and I love to do, watching the Jayhawks play. As you might be able to uh, tell, Dr. Lockett is a graduate of Kansas University and they have a long and proud history in basketball. So, And in fact, my daughter is a student there now oh, as well. Right. So lots of connections to the university. Yes. Yeah, uh, now financial. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Indeed. My money and my daughter go there. And so you uh, spent some time in Kansas City. You did your uh, seminary education there. And so my next question is, have you found any good barbecue in, in, <laughs> in Los Angeles? Well, I live in Brea, so that's outside of the city proper. And uh, there are a couple of barbecue places. Of course, nothing really holds a candle to uh, the smokehouse there in North Kansas City. Uh, I remember eating there as I was in my seminary days. We know it very well. Yeah. Yeah. 
There's a little place called Lily's Q in Brea that I go to, but uh, yeah, it just kind of makes me miss Kansas City more than anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of good things about living in Southern California. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Barbecue isn't one of them. Barbecue <laughs> isn't one of them, but the weather maybe compensates a little bit, so. We'll take it. You are a ruling elder in a PCA congregation in Orange, and obviously you haven't always been a PCA elder, haven't always been Reformed. Walk us through your journey into Reformed theology. Yeah, great question. So I became a Christian in high school. Some friends shared the gospel with me in a uh, high school Bible study, and uh, I began to thinking about life in Christ. And I followed these friends to local church where they were part of a youth group, and it just happened to be a Southern Baptist church and ended up being there for about a decade, growing in Christ, got baptized. My wife and I were both in the youth group there. Well, we weren't husband and wife at that moment, but uh, met Nicole, who eventually became my wife and grew there. When I began to sense a call to ministry, actually did some mission work with YWAM. It's a, a very non-denominational, almost kind of charismatic group. And uh, we did some evangelistic ministry in Eastern Europe. And that was a stretching, eye-opening time how to trust God, how to really relinquish my life to God's providential order. And uh, coming back from that experience made me think, I need more education. I need to really be prepared to teach the Bible, teach a systematic or at least a coherent theology to others. And so because I'd gone to a Southern Baptist church, you know, friends in my life had encouraged me to go to a Southern Baptist seminary that's there in North Kansas City. You know it well. While at Midwestern Baptist Seminary, I was introduced to the concept of Calvinism, you know, the concept that God is sovereign in my salvation for the first time. And at first, I was diametrically opposed to this. <laughs> <laughs> that can't be true. I said to a friend, I will not believe in a God who chooses one over another. And that friend looked at me and said, I would be careful what I say I would believe or not believe about God. <laughs> and I remember really being challenged by his response. Yeah. I went home and prayed and thought, Lord, where have I gotten my conceptions yeah. about my relationship with you? Of course, I prayed. Of course, I experienced your presence. Of course, I came to realize my sinfulness. But it was a sweet couple of years in seminary learning about the doctrines of grace, learning about how way before I ever knew I needed rescue, a God of love and grace had provided Christ to be my rescue and had been gun calling me way before I even, you know, became aware of the sinfulness of my sin or, you know, the misdirection of my life. And that was beautiful. That was great. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So it didn't cause doubt or fear. It gave you comfort to know that God loved you in Christ from all eternity. To think about a God who knew into the future what I needed and way before I needed it, provided it for me, did not lock me into some straitjacket. It showed me his incredible love for me, his careful plan that is so secure that I can't mess it up. I mean, so often before that time, I had relied upon my own kind of charisma or my own piety and devotion. And there's a certain degree of tiredness that comes along with that kind of intensity. Not that piety is wrong, but just that it can become pietism. It can become a way of maybe self-salvation. Anyway, you, no, this was I, beautiful. I understand exactly. I came out of a very similar background and experienced those things. You can find yourself in a kind of covenant of works. Right. Lord, I had my quiet time today. Yes, indeed. And therefore, I'm good. And you're obligated to me because I did my part. That hits it precisely. After seminary, I went on to work on a PhD in St. Andrews. It was a very secular academic context. But in that context, I was faced with the hermeneutical problem for me. How do the Old and New Testaments connect? 
I had, without thinking about it much, come to a point where they didn't connect in my theology. And as I understood and studied the New Testament, I was there doing a PhD in New Testament, and none of the secular New Testament folks were interested in how the old and new connected. But others on the theology side of things, and some of my peers who were from North America and evangelicals, some of them Reformed, really began to press on this issue. How are the old and new Testaments connected? And that pushed kind of a soteriologically Reformed position that I'd already moved to, to really think about this hermeneutical issue about how is this God's one story of salvation? How, you know, in pointed terms, how does the Old Testament witness to Jesus Christ without using his name? And so that pushed me further into some of the Reformed authors, a Voss and a Ritterboss, as I'm thinking about the connection between the Old and New Testament. Fast forward, I find myself in New York teaching at a small school called the King's College, and we find down the road this uh, Presbyterian church. And so we go there. It was a church plant of uh, Tim Keller's uh, Redeemer Church in New York. And uh, my wife and I heard the gospel there. We were already Christians. We already like were transformed by the gospel, but we heard it there in a new way. And we just cried and thought, oh, this is where we need to be. And so we became members of that church. We baptized our kids there because we came to the conviction, you know, that God's grace for my children comes way before they're aware of their sinful brokenness and that this baptism is pointing to this future faith that they will adopt as they, you know, are raised in the faith. But anyway, that's kind of some of the journey. So it's really grounded academically in your reflections on the fundamental unity of what we call the covenant of grace. That the same God who made a covenant with Noah and saved him and his household, and the same God who entered into covenant with Abraham and said, I will be a God to you and to your children after you, is the same God who came to us in Jesus Christ. And that you and I are Abraham's children, and the promise still exists. So that when the apostle Peter stood up and explained to the Israelites who were present at Pentecost, Mm -hmm. what was going on, all he had to say was, for the promise is to you and to your children and to the Gentiles that God is choosing and bringing into covenant with himself and all those Jewish heads of households there at Pentecost, they all said, well, of course, this is how God operates. Of course, this is how God operates. Indeed. Yeah. And so that hermeneutical question is what pushed me and kept me up at night. But as I saw this beautiful single story of God's redemptive purposes witnessed to by both Old and New Testament drew us to this reformed understanding of, of scripture. And it's really moved further in just seeing our lives changed. I had been a Christian for years and years, but to understand that the gospel is not just the thing I tell people on the street or the gospel is not just the thing that I start Christian life with, but it's the whole of the Christian life. The gospel is the A to the Z. It should permeate my marriage. It should permeate how I teach my children. It's not just get saved. It's be transformed by the renewing work of Jesus Christ in all that I do, all I think, and that's been savory. And so I love ministry at our local church. I'm a ruling elder there. I do get to teach quite a bit there because just of my profession, but love growing along with others in this gospel grace. And we're hoping to reach Orange County. I mean, it's uh, three million people in one county and not many reformed church contexts. And so very, very happy to be a part of Trinity and hopeful for more ministry and church planting to come in the future. Well, that's edifying. And it's exciting to think about the possibility of the same sovereign God who brought you and me to faith and whom we hope and pray and expect will bring our children to faith also has elect in the midst of those three million people. Indeed. And he uses the foolishness of preaching and the simple Christ-centered witness of his people in their everyday life to bring his elect to faith. What a marvelous idea to think about. Yeah, well, I know 
confidence I have standing up preaching, except the confidence that through the power of the Holy Spirit, God has chosen to draw people to himself through this act of preaching. And at one time in my life, I would have been very concerned about my words, my style, my my cajoling and convincing people, though, of course, still want to give the highest effort into the moment, accurately you know, communicating God's word. It's with the confidence that God's spirit is there using this frail human act, but in his sovereignty, drawing people to himself. It's a relief not to have to do the work of the Holy Spirit. Right. Yeah. Amen. Amen. It's his job to convict. <laughs> I just need to be faithful. Yeah. I need to be faithful to his call. So this morning you began, you gave the first of your two talks to the students and faculty and everybody assembled, and you began by arguing that the grammatical historical method of studying Scripture is necessary, right? you were very clear about that, it's completely necessary, but it's not sufficient, and that it has to be supplemented or complemented by a canonical approach. That's right. So walk us through that. Let's just analyze that a little bit. So first of all, you make a distinction between necessary and sufficient. Right. Tell us about that distinction. In grammatical historical hermeneutic, it's necessary. What's the difference between something being necessary and something being sufficient? Yeah, necessary just means um, that, well, with grammatical historical, the text of scripture is written by human beings in a particular historical context. And in order to appreciate the communicative intent of the author in that text, we need the tools of grammatical, historical exegesis. They're necessary. It's constituent of the thing we're doing. You need them. But when I say they're not sufficient, I really mean they're not sufficient on their own, all by themselves. I'm a biblical scholar. I study the New Testament. And the history of my discipline, especially through kind of the Enlightenment, modern era, is the history of academics shedding doctrine, shedding the church's influence. And turning to the objective facts of history. Quote, unquote. Right, exactly. And it's in that context that I'm talking about. I'm trying to say, I don't want to deny that grammatical historical hermeneutic is beneficial. In fact, it's necessary. They're the tools that we need to work with. But we're in a context in which, of course, secular historians who look at the Bible are going to argue that's all you need because that's all the text is. It's just an artifact. This is an antiquarian thing we're doing. We're describing what people back there back then believed. My worry is that Christians who hold to the divine word of God, that this is God speaking through his word, this is God's very word, that they would also adopt, unwittingly perhaps, this perspective that the grammatical historical approach is all there is that you need to do exegesis because the meaning of the text is totally discerned through this one methodological approach, grammatical historical. And so that's why I'm saying it's not sufficient it needs to be supplemented by some theological categories, namely canon, and that's at the heart of my concern. So, you're thinking about seminary, but you're asking yourself, where will I live in Escondido? Westminster Seminary, California has good news. We've completed Westminster Village, a beautiful new place for you to live on campus. Open now, Westminster Village features eight residential buildings, 64 apartments including one, two, and three bedroom units, and a commons where seminary families can fellowship together. Here's Joel Kim, president of Westminster Seminary, California, on the benefits of Westminster Village. Escondido is a beautiful place in which to live, but students wonder if they've actually afforded. Our goal is to benefit the students by providing a beautiful but affordable place to live on campus. In addition, we believe that learning happens not only in the classroom, but also by living together in community. Just as lifelong learning begins in the classroom, so lifelong relationships will begin in our new residential village. 
For more information, call toll-free 888-480-8474. That's 888-480-8474. Or visit us online at wscal.edu. That's wscal.edu. And ask us about our new residential village. wscal.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. You and I both have roots in Kansas, and so you'll get this, and the listener will understand this. A tractor has to have wheels, but wheels are not sufficient. They're necessary. If you don't have wheels on a tractor, you're not going to get very far at all. You can't use it. It's not going to function. You can't plow. You can't do anything with it. But just because you have wheels, if you don't have an engine, the tractor, again, is not going to do anything. So the wheels are necessary, but they're not sufficient. An engine is necessary, but it's not sufficient. You have to have both things. And that's what you're saying, that we ought to read Scripture grammatically, historically, but we need to also do that in light of a broader history. And there's a history to a text before we come to it. And that history is shaped by the fact that God the Holy Spirit gave the Scripture to the church as its rule. And there's a redemptive historical context that's broader than any particular passage. And we read that passage both individually, but also in light of the whole. Am I getting close? Yeah, in light of the whole canon. And so as a biblical scholar and as one equipped with the tools of history, what I'm specifically looking at is that development of the canon. How is it that these 66 books, for me, New Testament, so these particular 27 New Testament texts, how did they come to be collected in this final authoritative set of documents? What we confess about Scripture is that God, the Holy Spirit, has providentially brought about, orchestrated these particular 66 books to come together, not any other books. That theological confession is connected to a historical process. We can describe historically some of this process. We can use manuscripts, uh, evidence from manuscript remains. We can think about early church fathers and how they talked about these texts. And we can think about the moment the texts are composed when they're authored, the historical moment of composition. But what I want to say is we need to continue to think about these texts all the way up to their final canonization. And historically, not to get too detailed, that's a little difficult moment to know exactly when the New Testament canon is closed. This becomes very contentious in scholarly debates because it hinges upon a definition of canon. But from a Christian context, we should be very concerned and interested in the fact that not only these texts were authored by human beings, but by God's providence, they also historically came to be associated together as a canon. And that context needs to inform our interpretation. Grammatical, historical interpretation of the text needs to be informed by the fact that these aren't individual texts we're reading. James isn't separate from First Peter at the end of the day. They stand right next to each other in the canon. It's part of a collection. It's part of a collection. That's right. And there's always a dual authorship to these texts. So James wrote an epistle. Peter wrote, we believe, two epistles. But the Holy Spirit wrote them all through those individual authors in their historical contexts, using their particular gifts and personalities and so forth, so that we pay attention to all of that at the same time, which is challenging, isn't it? It is. And just to circle back on what you said, the dual authorship of Scripture leads to the fact that these texts are mutually interpretive. Mm-hmm. Matthew has something to do with Isaiah, yeah. not because they share the same historical context, but because they 
are situated in canon, and they must be interpreted together. That's really important. There are evangelical Bible readers and scholars who really seem to struggle with that notion. Of course. And I'm sympathetic. I'm sympathetic to this and holding scripture so highly and wanting to do justice to the meaning of the text and using historical grammatical tools to do justice to the text. But when those are the only tools in the toolkit, someone's not going to naturally ask, what does Matthew have to do with Isaiah? Because the interpretive impulse, the tools are leading us to isolate the text, think about its historical author, audience, and situation, and then interpret the meaning of the text in that context only. Where did they buy those tools, right? If you go to Lawrence and you need something to fix a tractor, you go to the TSC, right? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. John Deere. John Deere. All right. So we bought these grammatical historical tools at a store, and we've had them in our garage for so long, yeah. we forgot that we bought them at a store. Right. What's the name of that well, store? Well, it comes from the Enlightenment, right? Okay. It comes from a kind of a grammatical, historical development of ideas. And this is complex. There's a whole set of issues that are woven together in this history of ideas. There are good ideas there that we don't want to let go. Sure. History is important. Authors have communicative intentions. I don't just bring meaning to the text from my mind. I want to hear what the author's trying to say. Yeah. So some of these tools, very helpful, but they're wrapped around some other assumptions that God doesn't exist. Or if he does, he's gone to, he's the, gone. Gone to yeah. the corner for a beer and he, he's not coming yeah. back. He's not engaged in this world. Yeah. The idea that a guy named Trolch, Ernst Trolch, right? I mean, his principle of history is that, well, if it doesn't happen now, it couldn't have happened then. Yeah. I don't see people... You know, raising from the dead now. So obviously Jesus, you know, that didn't happen to him. It's this principle of, you know, coherence. That's a secular kind of. It's a rationalist principle. Right. Absolutely. Irenaeus in the 170s and Polycarp in the 130s and 140s, they were also reading Holy Scripture a long time before Ernst Trausch changed the way we look at Scripture. And Irenaeus uses the word history. Yeah. But he's going to use that in a very different way. Because he doesn't assume a critical stance towards Correct. And that's what I'm worried about, that this critical stance toward history is absorbed without much thinking into the grammatical historical approach. And then as, you know, the metaphor, we're using these tools, not realizing all that comes with them sometime. And again, this is not to set those tools aside is unhelpful, but it's to say the toolkit's half outfitted. We need more tools. We actually, maybe it's a way to say it, we need a more theological way of understanding history. History is important, but we need to understand that God is the providential God of history, that uh, God doesn't stand outside or, you know, historical events aren't accidental or just developmental. God is actually getting his will done in these series of events. So some of those theological concerns, I think, can be talked about in interpretation with this concept of canon, thinking about how what we're reading, define what this is that we're reading. It's God's holy word. It is both historical, but also theological. It has a moment of composition when human authors put pen to paper, but it also sits in this canon with these texts sitting together. And our task of interpretation is not done when we've only thought about historical authors and historical contexts, but needs to, at the same time, incorporate thinking about how these texts are understood together. Really, this is a Christian principle, scripture interpreting scripture. Maybe what I'm doing is just giving kind of historical academic kind of argumentation for this notion of scripture really needs to be interpreted along with scripture. I mean, Augustine in his little book on Christian teaching said, well, you don't understand this passage? Well, keep reading. (laughs) Keep reading. (laughs) I'm glad you said that. And I hope when my students hear this, that they'll laugh when they hear because uh, they They've heard me say that many, many times. Keep reading. 
That is such an important principle. You know, we think if we just read this paragraph, but we've got this all figured out. Well, no, there's stuff before the paragraph and there's stuff after the paragraph and you got to read the whole thing. Or, and maybe this is just indicative of the kind of circles I run in, but, you know, a historical biblical scholar reads a paragraph and then immediately goes to Philo or Josephus or immediately goes to the Dead Sea Scrolls. All very helpful context. Very helpful things. different context. Exactly. They go outside the canon and go to some historical reconstruction of first century, again, important ideas. But all of those moves trump, well, what does Matthew have to do with Isaiah? How is Isaiah informing what Matthew is saying here? Or... You know, how is First Peter informing what James is saying here? You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Exactly. It's so interesting that your next lecture gets to the Petrine Epistles, in which I have a deep personal interest. Oh, I've good. been reading them and working on them and even drafting a commentary, and they have really influenced the way I look at Scripture. So maybe we can talk about that later. But I'm interested in what you're doing with them and how you're applying this principle or this approach to first and second Peter. So the Catholic epistles in general, those are the small letters, James through Jude. The category of Catholic epistle, I'm going to argue, is a canonical grouping or collection. So again, I'm interested in the historical development of canon. Part of the story of the historical development of the New Testament canon is that groups of texts were authoritative before the whole 27 text collection came together. So we have lots of evidence that the four gospels circulated together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they circulated together as authoritative witnesses to the life of Jesus. They were already scripture, already canon circulating as a fourfold witness to Jesus. Paul's letters, Second Peter, actually gives us testimony that a group of Paul's letters are circulating, being read by folks who were weren't the first audience you know, that Paul wrote to and being read and compared to other scripture. That's great evidence of the canonical process that this collection of Paul's letters are being read as scripture in collection together. And Peter thinks and writes theologically. Oh, yes. Right. So that as I read Peter, I think that the two epistles are, you know, despite their stylistic differences and the things that people always point to, again, coming at it from a grammatical historical point of view, uh, or at least some version thereof, right. I think Peter is taking a very redemptive historical look at all of Scripture, for example, appealing consistently and regularly to Noah. And it seems to me that's a fundamentally canonical way sure. of understanding Scripture. He's teaching us how to read Scripture. Indeed. There's a lot more that could be said about that in terms of Peter's hermeneutic and understanding the Old Testament. Here's an illustration. Take First and Second Peter and illustrate some of my concerns. So the early church in the canonical process saw the Catholic epistles as a collection. Now, this is the oddest collection because you don't have common authorship like the Pauline epistles, and you don't have a common story like the gospels. So the Catholic epistles have not fared well in kind of this uh, appreciation. Take First and Second Peter as an example. Historical critical scholarship, grammatical historical scholarship stresses the fact that First and Second Peter are different. And a critical position comes down on saying there's no way that Peter wrote Second Peter. But what they're ignoring is the plain sense of the text of Second Peter. In fact, when people look at Second Peter, it's usually Second Jude. Jude and yes. Second Peter yes. <laughs> share so many literary connections yeah. together. And that, theological. Yeah. Indeed, and that's great. But in almost every commentary series, you see yeah. Second Peter and Jude, Jude together, yeah. not First and Second Peter together. Exactly. Notice what you have to ignore in order to do that. You have to ignore the plain sense reading of Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1. This is the second letter I've now written to you. The author of Second Peter is working hard to associate his letter with First Peter. That's the canonical association. 
that the first readers you know saw, understood, and, yeah. and took for granted. Now, watch what happens when you read First and Second Peter together. Often people argue that there is a poverty of Christology in Second Peter. Well, when you read First and Second Peter together, notice what kind of Christology you get. In Second Peter, he talks about the transfiguration and Jesus's revelation of his uh, glorified state before his death and resurrection. First Peter then talks about his death and what kind of divine status that his death reveals. And then his resurrection is talked about in First Peter as well. But then in Second Peter, you hear the second coming, the glorious coming of Jesus Christ. So if you put First and Second Peter together, you get a manifestation of Jesus' glory in his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and then the sure teaching of his coming again. Notice the Christology that is a full Christology if you read both of those letters together instead of separating them and then seeing somehow that, you know, Second uh, Peter has less of a Christology than First Peter. Yeah. That's just one kind of insight that I think the original readers of these texts in this canonical period, right, when the New Testament collection is coming together, they're reading the logic of the texts themselves and they're saying, look, we receive these texts as from God. Look what's in these texts. Oh, these two texts go together. Look how they complement one another. That's part of what I think we find in this canonical process. And I think those are hermeneutically significant. So first Peter and second Peter should be read together. Or here's another example. Luke, traditionally associated with Acts. Great. The early church thought Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. But in the manuscript tradition, Luke never circulates with Acts. Almost every manuscript that we have that's large enough to demonstrate shows that Luke is circulating with a fourfold gospel. I think that is a canonical judgment. Not that we should never read Luke and Acts together, but there's some fundamental witness that Luke has alongside three other gospels to the life of Jesus. That's a kind of canonical insight. I don't want it to throw all other insights out, but that kind of insight is never brought into consideration with a typical grammatical historical approach. Those are the kinds of insights that I think we should observe from canon, be attentive to, and allow them to help us see associations, because that's what's happening in canon, association of texts. And you're not saying that it's canonical because it's canonical to me in, no, my, in my experience, nor are you saying that it's canonical because the church says so. You are responding to what Scripture says about itself, its own testimony about itself. The very fabric of the text itself is communicating. And what it's communicating is that these texts go together. I sat in the office of Richard Bauckham, a well-respected New Testament scholar. I studied with at St. Andrews, and I'll remember this till the day I die. He was talking about the New Testament canon, and he pushed back, and he looked up into the ceiling, and he said, you know, and he could say this because he's a world-renowned scholar. He said, I've read all the texts of Second Temple Judaism, and there's something completely unique about these 27 texts that make them stand out from all the other texts around them. And they go together just by the nature of the very fabric of the text. And I thought, canon. <laughs> We're recognizing it's not I'm making it canon or the church is making it canon, but that's a reception of what it is. And I think that there's a historical story to tell about how first readers, the early Christians, received these texts and noticed that they go together. And in that process of association, that a process of association, human beings were a part of that. But they weren't forcing those associations. It wasn't, you know, forced upon the text somehow. It's not a historical accident, but it's a divinely, providentially guided process where the very signals of the texts are indicating that they go together. Four Gospels, Paul's letters, Pauline collection, the Catholic epistles, and they're read. And those kinds of canonical connections then are connections that should help us interpret Come alongside Grammatical Historical. That's the gist of my point. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. 
Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.